This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The uh, the last of the uh, three debates that were held uh, for, well, the Ontario election, of course, and only three of the four party leaders were invited. Mike Schreiner, of course, of the Green Party, was not invited to any of those debates. Uh, last night's was on the CBC building uh, down on Front Street in Toronto. And uh, it was interesting. It was lively. It was uh, boring at times. And uh, a lot of it was same old, same old, I suppose. And I'm not so sure if it moved the art sticks for anybody who was one of the undecided voters. But uh, it did get a little bit uh, messy from time to time. And, uh, and of course, the usual accusations were made. I mean, that's what happens in these debates. And uh, one exchange, especially between uh, Andrea Horvath and Doug Ford, uh, got a little out of hand. We haven't even seen any numbers from Mr. Ford. People started voting yesterday, Mr. Ford. Where is your platform? Where is your respect for the people now when they're already at the polls and you haven't provided them any information about what it is that you plan to do in our province? What are you going to cut? A common theme, and Premier Kathleen Wynne also went after Doug Ford for that, and they've been saying that obviously since the beginning of this campaign. That, uh, and there's, there's a legitimate point there, that there is no uh, platform per se. There is no costed platform released by the Conservatives. Uh, Doug Ford's response essentially was, well, I'm making funding announcements all along. But, I mean, you've got to have a balance sheet on this. So if you went into a bank and asked for a bank loan and said, look, I want to start up a business, and you didn't have a business plan, they'd toss you out on the sidewalk. Uh, but it seems as if that seems to be the uh, the, the strategy of the uh, the PCs at this stage. Not that there were not a lot of holes to pick in the uh, the other two platforms. Uh, the liberal platform, such as it is, uh, is is really the budget that they released a couple of months ago, uh, with all costing done on that and and some of the projections. And of course, the NDP. The problem with that, and uh, Mr. Ford was quick to point out, was a, uh, a, a bookkeeping error in the budget uh, that ended up costing a well a considerable amount of money. And, uh, and he made a big deal of that, and, and it went back and forth, and uh, a lot of accusations back and forth between uh, the, the leaders. I, I thought the whole thing, uh, from a, a production standpoint, is, was actually quite good. Uh, Steve Pakin and uh, Farah Nasser, who, both of whom were on our show, of course, on Friday, were the two moderators on this, and uh, there were three different parts to this. Questions uh, from that panel, from uh, Farah and from Steve, Questions to the leaders, by the leaders, and then questions from the public. Uh, the ones that, Here's the common theme I saw through the whole thing. Uh, a lot of obfuscation. Uh, a question, for instance, about costing and what, you know, how are you going to pay for this. And they all got into their talking points and their little dance about this, that, and the other thing, and nobody really answered the question. And, if that, that's, and that was only on one of the many subjects that were brought up, whether it was from the public or the questions that were asked of each other. Uh, it, it just got to the point where you're thinking, you know, you, you're not even listening to what's being asked here. You simply said, these are the talking points I want to get across. And I get that. I get that. I know all the political handlers are saying, well, that's the way it's supposed to be played. Well, that's not what the public wants to hear. And that was one of the frustrations I felt. Richard Brennan joins us on the program, retired journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. How are you? I more frustrated than I was. I think before the debate started last night. What was your reaction to what you saw and heard? Well, it was all pretty predictable stuff. Like I know what your frustration is, but you know they just, uh, uh, you know, the premier, you know, she she came across looking like a premier, and, and she you know answered the questions in terms of a you know kind of technical policy wonk kind of way, and uh, and then we had uh, you know Ford who 
was just staring at the camera, you know, mouthing hit the lines he'd learned in, you know, in front of the mirror, you know, hours before. And, uh, and then we had Andrea, who's, I was a bit, uh, it was a bit off-putting for her to be yelling or commenting as somebody was answering. I, I, and I know she's trying to make a point, like, you know, she had some good lines, but you got to think that you're a member of the public, you're watching this, and you're going, somebody's answering a question, and someone else is yammering away about whatever. And I, I just, it's not professional. You know what I mean? Well, do you remember, it, as she was doing that yesterday, it reminded me of, of the Clinton-Trump debates, where, you know, Clinton was trying to make a point, and, and Trump just, there's, you know, the, the, the rules were set, but he kept saying, not true, not right in the middle of her statements, interrupting her constantly. And and there is a protocol, and I know that the fans of, of Andrea Horvath are going to say, well, come on, she's scoring points, but you know what, she was told beforehand, these are the rules of the debate. And she basically ignored them because she wanted to get her points across. And and I, that that's a problem for me. Oh, and I think most people will, will look at that and say, you know, uh, you know that that's people who might have said, you know, whether it'll mean she'll lose votes or not or not, but, but it makes people give it a second thought and say, is this, you know, do we really want this kind of behavior at Queen's Park? And you know, maybe they'll say, who, who cares? But I, I, I just, I found that, you know, the answers were, you know, uh, ephemeral and, you know, it, they, you, know, the, you know, in terms of it being, having any substance whatsoever. And it was just the same old, same old. And it, I don't know. I, I can, you know, the frustration that the public must have in terms of, who do you vote for? The, maybe the, the most telling of that, maybe it encapsulates all the stuff you just talked about here, Richard, was uh, when they went to the audience for questions, and the first one was uh, a, a young fellow from Burlington, red-haired fellow, uh, and basically he said, how are you going to pay for all the stuff you're promising us? Which I think is a great question. Yeah. He, he boiled the whole, th- the whole campaign right down to one question. Ne- none of the three of them answered it. They simply got into, oh, I'm going to get this, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to raise taxes, I'm going to drop this, you're going to tax cut. They didn't, none of them said how they were going to pay for it. Well, and that remains the number one question. You know, uh, when you when you got the kind of debt that Ontario has, you, you want to you know somebody's at the helm. You, you really hope somebody's steering the ship. You don't want someone who's just playing with the levers. And that's, you know, I would suggest, you know, Ford, because it was his inexperience. I just, a, a great line I, I saw today on Twitter uh, from Jim Coyle, a uh, friend of mine at the Star. He said, it's strange to live in a time when the less you know is regarded as experience. You know, that they people will know nothing about politics, but come out and tell you that they're very wise. And, and and that's where I get with Ford. You know, it's just this this idea that he can throw out these lines or and anything that popped into his head. I where I had to agree with Andrew last night is you're just making stuff up, <laughs> and he was. Well, I mean, you know, he he reiterated some of the things about the the great accomplishments, at least in his opinion, that uh, that he had on Toronto City Council. You know, how he did this and saved the city, etc. Uh, I just want to put this in context because I, I mean, I paid passive interest to what was going on in Toronto Council simply because I found it interesting. 
But the reality is, is this guy, for what he considers to be, a, you know, all his political experience, he served four years on Toronto City Council. That's his political experience. Bingo, end of sentence. And he hardly showed up. Well, first, yeah, I'm told that his voting record was about 52, 52%, I think. So half the time he wasn't even there for votes. That's correct. The other element to this is, uh, in in all those four years that he was there, uh, I would tell you that as an observer, and, and I, I'm going to tell you, of course, I didn't read all the agendas and everything. I didn't see all the debates, but I talked to the people that did cover that stuff. Uh, Doug Ford's legacy as a four-year Toronto councillor was was watching his brother's back. He, he did not initiate policy. He is not one of these people that was a mover and shaker and saying, I'm going to do this. He simply followed along whatever his brother wanted to do and then tried to defend his brother to, in the media. That, that seemed to, That's his legacy as a Toronto yeah, councillor, not, as, not as a fiscal conservative, not as anything no. else. And or, or when he wasn't uh, when he wasn't defending his brother, he was sitting in his brother's chair, mayor's chair, you know, pretending he was the deputy mayor. I mean, you know, it's it, again what I'm saying. He's you know he's offering he's offering what he says is wisdom, which really amounts to nothing. Well, I'll tell you what's what's going to happen here. I, it's I think Kathleen. The best thing that the, you know, quite frankly, I think that is that she loses her own seat. Which is a distinct possibility, we're told. And now, by the way, I agree with your assessment. I think of, of all the debates and maybe even the speeches she's made, last night was probably her best performance in this oh, campaign. Ab- absolutely. And, you know, but w- too little too late, Richard. It, well, it is. It, it's way too late. And, and, and again, you know, uh, many people have said this, and, and I, I tend to agree, but I knew she wouldn't. She should have stepped down a year ago and let somebody else take over, and, and a fresh face will often improve, you know, the uh, the possibility of the government being reelected just because it is a fresh face. And she didn't, so, you know, and... Uh, but Richard, on that point, of, of all people, she should know that, because that's probably what let, let her win the first time she ran as, as party leader, as premier, because well, Dalton McGuinney saw the writing on the wall and said, if I run again, I'm going to get slaughtered. He stepped down, and the Liberals won the next election, but granted, a minority... But uh, but an election nonetheless, because they changed the face of the party. Oh no, absolutely, and you know, and uh, I'll tell you, if I was, I was either the betting man, I tell you, I wouldn't know what to bet right now because I think there's every good chance that Ford could still win this. Because I know she's, you know, they they say Andrea surging and all that, but Andrea doesn't. She's her her support is kind of dispersed all over the place where his support is concentrated. And he still could win this. No question in my mind. A lot of people just said, oh, no, he's, he's not fit. Well, it, well, at some point, you know, the voters will decide that. But he, it, they're so close that I'm telling you, he, he, could, uh, he could still win this. You could, still be, you could be saying, you know, Premier Ford, you know, on after June 7th. And, and we've talked about that right from the beginning of this uh, campaign, which actually started about a year and a half or two years ago. This is not about popular vote. I mean, I understand some people just hang their head on that. This is about seat distribution. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at the 905 and the GTA in that area. And and in Toronto itself, in the Toronto, greater Toronto area itself, as you know, Richard, I mean, there's 43 seats up for grabs. Uh, and and that's that's the that's the motherload for political parties that want to form a government is the is the nine oh five and the GTA. If you can score points there, and that's what the Liberals did in the last election, you win. 
And uh, it's it's a horse race now, we're told, between the NDP and the Conservatives. But most of the things I've seen about this say that many of those ridings are too close to call. Well, you know, in the last election, the Liberals didn't win. Hudak lost. And you know, so their, even their win last time was was marginal, if, you, if I can say that, because if he hadn't fumbled the ball so badly, there's a good chance he would have won. And and I th- think it's going to prove itself that this time around that the liberals just they they have nothing to offer that people can wrap their head around. They've got policies and that. And I I'm I am you know I think that there's every possibility they could be reduced to not even a rump. And and this this is so incredible when you think of it. Well, but we've seen the writing on the wall, and and it, this is not a shock to the Liberals. At least it better not be. I mean, it, it was obvious to just about the rest of us that they had to turn their party's fortunes around. And and you can sing a song about how the economy's better than it was four years ago, and there are numbers that indicate that's the case. And, yes, hydro rates are down. But uh, but as Andrew Horvath pointed out, uh, a lot of the stuff you're trying to correct right now is stuff that you messed up in the first place. And, and you know, there's so there's that. I mean, she's going to wear this stuff no matter what. But therein lies the problem. I mean, you know, I, I Andrea, over, you know, talking over people, even though she was told, look, you can do that in the free debate. Don't interrupt other people. She continued to do it. Uh, when going on, uh, <laughs> as we, you've explained a thousand times, Richard, if you're explaining, you're losing. And she spent way too much time trying to defend her policies. And Doug Ford, if you know, putting his hands out there and say, friends, that's that same smarmy look that you usually get from these televangelists before they say, now send me your money. And it just, I, I guess he was trying to be sincere, but I think it came across as just the opposite. With respect to Ford, you can never go wrong with saying, run for your life. And that's what he did yesterday. Uh, I remember 1990 when Peterson was during the dying days of the campaign, and he knew he was, it, was, it was disappearing quickly. He told a group, and it was a gathering of folks at the airport in Sudbury. And he said, "If you vote NDP, you'll lose your job, and your and your children will go hungry." And that's the kind of thing. If he if if Peterson had started that earlier, I think it would have caught fire. That's that's what Ford was trying to do yesterday. He, he's, he's he's raising the fear factor, and I'm not so sure that people aren't going to bite on that. It works. I mean, if you hit people over the head long enough and hard enough, it starts to resonate. But is there enough time to do that now? Well, there's still ten days left. Yeah, there's still ten days left, and you got you know if you get a you know you get him and out that message and say, do you really understand what's going to happen if you vote NDP? And I'm not agreeing one way or the other, but that's if he can get that message and if he can plant that seed, that's going to hurt Andrea. No question about it. But the fear factor card was played by just about everybody last night, Richard. I mean, you know, they, they resurrected the ghost of Mike Harris, too, to say, hey, you think you think the, the NDP was bad? What about what happened after that? The hospital closings, the job losses, the teacher strikes, and, and on and on and on. A lot of looking in the rearview mirror last night. But uh, it, we'll, we'll see if we'll, we'll see if he can, if he can uh, actually, like I say, if, if that will sell. It may be too late, but I don't think so. And and I I, I was really kind of disappointed. I just get back at it with Andrea last night. I thought she was, uh, you know, this this kind of 
it wasn't even heckling. It was just kind of nonsensical sometimes, and laughing like almost hysterically. And I thought, what point are you trying to make? Well, if anybody tuned in last night who was undecided and said, I want somebody to impress me, that I want to, I want to picture them in the Premier's office. Uh, I'm not so sure that anybody would grab that. Kathleen Wynne probably came as close as anybody did, but again, I think her future's already been sealed. Yeah, well, it, well you, I, I gave up a long time ago expecting, you know, the, the, the knockout punch, because it just doesn't happen. But it, it even so as, you know, as... Uh, as unprepared uh, as Ford was and, and kind of how it turned a bit chaotic at some point, it still gives voters, these debates, an inkling of what people are, are about. And that's what it serves. And I, again, you know, you know, got to remember, you and I have been involved in politics or followed politics for a very long time. Most people don't. And so they're just trying to get a read on on the people that are putting their names forward. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure they would have got a read on anybody last night. Quite and, right. and therein lies the problem. Richard, uh, as you say, a lifetime is a week, or a week is a lifetime in politics, and we got a lifetime and a half before we have to vote. Uh, we'll talk again before that. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, thanks, Bill. Of course, uh, Richard Brennan, retired journalist who covered this stuff for years and years. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. NAFTA, well, we're not sure what's going on with NAFTA, frankly. It depends on which side you're talking to and listening to at this particular situation. All we know is we don't have a deal. Uh, Donald Trump is, is now talking again about Canada being unreasonable and uh, spoiled when it comes to situations like this, while others are speaking up about this, uh, including a former conservative interim leader, Ronna Ambrose, who, by the way, before this was usually pretty supportive of the government and actually told her fellow conservatives to back off and, and let the government make a deal if they possibly could. Now she's weighed in once again and suggested that if Donald Trump is going to use other economic tools, such as, of course, tariffs, etc., Canada's got to fight back. you got to play a punch for punch if you're going to get into the ring with these guys. That's, that seemed to be the essence of what she was saying. Is that a good strategy? Is that actually an effective strategy for this country? Let's ask Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University as he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Ian. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing just fine. Do we uh, poke the bear if this starts happening? I want to. This is a very important issue, and so I want to make a, a distinction that I don't think is being made uh, by Ms. Ambrose, for whom I have great respect, by the way, nor by uh, a lot of the coverage. We have to distinguish between the negotiations and what's going on there, going back and forth over dairy and telecom and automobiles and so forth, which is perfectly legitimate to make demands on both sides, mm-hmm. all three sides, actually, because there's three countries. But let's distinguish that situation from where Trump then, to use my language, cheats by imposing, for example, tariffs on our cars or tariffs on our aluminum and steel or some other uh, tariffs in order to try to uh, uh, force us at the negotiating table to compromise. So I'm making the distinction between demanding compromises inside the negotiating room, perfectly legitimate. What's not legitimate is to impose tariffs to try to force us to compromise. And if he does that, then I do agree with Ms. Ambrose, we should fight back bare knuckles. 
Uh, and, and that's an important distinction to make, and, and I think she was trying to do that. I, I haven't seen all the headlines, but uh, she's a pretty intelligent lady and yeah. seemed to have a pretty good handle on this file. And, yeah. and I think what she's concerned of is, uh, well, what some people might call it economic blackmail. In other words, you, you're not going to agree with what we want here at the bargaining table, so I'm going to do something outside this room, which is going to have a, a, put pressure on you, basically, to say, okay, I give. Okay, I'll, we'll do it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's blackmail, isn't it? It is. That's that's first. There's two things. Yes, it's blackmail. Secondly, I think it's illegal. And I mean by illegal, I mean more nobody can put the president in jail. I don't mean that kind of illegal, but I mean it's a violation of treaty agreements that the United States is a party to. That's and I'm certainly not a trade lawyer, but certainly my understanding that that's a violation of the WTO, which is a World Trade Organization treaty. WTO is not only an organization, but it's an actual treaty of 162 countries, US and Canada including. And 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 it's a violation of NAFTA. So, you know, he I mean that's why I use the word very carefully this is a form of cheating because when you violate the commitments you've made in those trade agreements and you go and do that then that's you know the old-fashioned language is you're cheating you're breaking the rules but is that not something that we've seen from trump before i mean if anything over the last year and a half we've seen and it's that he really doesn't have a whole lot of respect for rules and regulations i do agree with you and this shows and this is something that um i haven't really talked about because it's an area i feel very uncomfortable with but although in you know, the whole point of trade agreements, and there's a long theory on this, I mean, in the literature that's been studied, which I do respect, and, and the, the theory is based on the, you know, we're all equal, and there should be one common level playing field, which I completely agree with. The problem is that in the real world, I, I don't just mean in my proverbial ivory tower, as people like to call the university, but in the real world, all countries are not equal. So sorry, Canadians, we're not. The United States is ten times bigger than we are. They are the world's superpower. That does not mean that we have to lie down and just say, you know, roll me over and you know, beat me up. But it does mean that we have to be aware of the fact that the United States can get away with things and China, those two countries, the world's two superpowers, can actually get away with behavior that smaller countries cannot get away with just because they're smaller and they don't have the power. So there's a, there is real politique, to use the famous phrase of Henry Kissinger, involved when you're talking about trade that you cannot ignore. That is to say, yes, we're ostensibly, theoretically, idealistically, we're all equal, uh, but in the real world, some countries choose that wonderful phrase of George Orwell, uh, some countries are more equal than others. Yeah, doesn't that fit? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but given that reality, and you're right, Ian, it is a reality, uh, that's the purpose of places like the World Trade Organization, yeah. is not they're supposed to be the arbitrator, the referees here. Yes, and in fact, that's why I'm such a strong supporter uh, it, you know, of, of trade agreements generally, because I've long believed that they benefit, and this is in a weird, weird way where Trump does get it, in a really weird way, but trade agreements benefit small countries more than big countries. Uh, because what we're trying to do, smaller countries, whether it's Sweden or Canada, small, I'm talking people, population, GDP, that sort of thing. We're only 36 million, as we all know. The United States is 315 million, 20 trillion GDP. And what we're trying to do in trade agreements is indeed level the playing field by putting constraints on the big guys. On the bull, on the the big guys often are bullies. Hit down through human history for thousands of years. The 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 superpower of the day, whether it was Rome in ancient times, 
you know, beats up on the smaller countries. And so that's why we created the United Nations after World War II, and we created the WTO to, to try to put some uh, constraints on the big guys so that they would play by the rules. And it's, well, I'm not going to suggest it's working, because that's a very subjective term, but I mean, it's, yes. it's worked to Canada's benefit, maybe you put it that way, because yes. on a number of issues that they've gone to the WTA about, especially about U.S. trade, uh, they've ruled in favor of Canada. Now, I, do, I don't know that that's done a whole lot to try to, you know, mend relations between the two countries from a trade standpoint, and as a matter of fact, Trump's made a, a couple of comments more than once now that he's upset about that and doesn't like the system, which has, I guess is one of the reasons why one of the sticking points in these current NAFTA negotiations is he says, will decide if any if we did yeah. something wrong exactly and that's that's the one that we should be fighting tooth and nail over not over supply management or or telecom or something like that we should be fighting tooth and nail i mean going literally to the wall on the um dispute mechanism and the the and not allowing him to have a clause in there that says they can impose these um tr- uh you know tariffs whenever they want, which would defeat the entire purpose, point of a trade agreement. I mean, if he has that, well, then why bother even having a trade agreement? I mean, if he can just willy-nilly say, oh, today I feel like uh, tariffs on uh, wheat, tomorrow it's on uh, softwood lumber, and the next day it's on cars, well, it truly... It is pointless having a NAFTA at that point. And that's why we really do have to go uh, to the wall on that one to ensure that, that he doesn't have his way, get his way on that. And that's where, just if I can just throw in a quick aside, this is where I do disagree with labor leaders in Canada, for that matter, the States, but I'm not an American, I'm a Canadian. And they don't understand that tr- trade agreements are in the Canadian interest. They're in the workers' interest because they protect us in theory and in practice to some degree from the bullies from the trumps that's why trump wants to take out that protection so badly so he can be shall we say a more efficient bully <laughs> it's, it's interesting I'm glad you brought the idea about uh, the trade agreements and, and labor into this as well because uh, both both ms ambrose and jerry dice from uh, unifor uh, we're on question period on CTV yeah. yesterday morning, as you know, and uh, yeah. I, that may be the headline we're missing here, actually. Ian, the, yeah, Ron Ambrose and Jerry Dias agreeing on this, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that that doesn't happen that often. That's kind of oh. like ha- Halley's Comet, but there it was. But, yeah. but Bell, the, the essence of what they seem to be saying was, if this leads to a trade war between Canada and the U.S., so be it. I, I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. So am I, because let me be really blunt. If we get into a trade war with the United States, I will make an, a prediction, a very, very hard prediction. We will lose. You know, it's like the Pee Wee hockey team taking on the, uh, the uh, one of the top NHL hockey teams. And I'm sorry, there's some Canadians that's really going to grate them really on their ears, and they're going to say, oh, that's, you know, unpatriotic or something. I don't know. It's just a reality. We need them more than they need us. We are trying to gain access to the American market because it's the biggest market in the world. And secondly, and the most obvious that we forget about, it's right next door. It's 30 minutes away for many of us. I live in Ottawa. I am literally 45 minutes to Prescott, Ontario, which is the bridge across to Ogdensburg, New York. That's how close. People don't realize that. I tell that to Canadians. They're just flabbergasted. Ottawa is 45 minutes. I can get to the U.S. border far faster than I can get driving to Toronto or Montreal. How do you like that? And, and so my point being, and you look at every Canadian, major Canadian city in our country, we're located just 
just next door. Vancouver, just next door to Seattle. You know, of course, Toronto, just next door to Buffalo. And Montreal is next door to Vermont up to, and, and, and the, the border states along there, the, the, meaning the New England states. And so my point is, when you've got the biggest market in the world that's 30 to 60 minutes away, it's kind of silly to say, oh, let's forget about that market and we'll go 10,000 miles away to China where they don't speak English. I mean, I mean, they can exercise. This is like being in a peace shooter to a gunfight. I mean, yes. and, and I'm not yes. trying to diminish the Canadian economy because, uh, you know, I, I, we've done what we've done, and it's wonderful, but it's all based on trade agreements. Uh, yes. This this is a, a huge entity, the United States economy, and they can roll over anybody they want if That's they right. can do, if they do it unchecked. A trade war just seems to me totally counterproductive to what we need to do here. Totally counterproductive because we will – Get, I mean, I, years ago, I remember I was a grade five, and this bully, uh, this kid, much bigger than me, just clobbered me, just beat the living daylights out of me. And then I realized, you know, bigger people have more power. I mean, sure, it was wrong what he did, but that doesn't matter. He still beat me up, okay? And, uh, and so my point being that, you know, there's no point playing Tarzan and, you know, pounding our chest and saying, me, macho man, you know, we ain't going to stand up to the Americans. And there's just a little bit too much of braggadocio in some of the uh, labor leaders. We have to be much more skillful and, and, and negotiate much more intelligently than trying a direct confrontation with the largest economy in the world. That does not mean we lie down and play dead. It does not mean we give up. We've got other tools in our arsenal. You know, we can launch challenges to the WTO. There are still possible. NAFTA is still in effect. We can launch challenges there. So there's there's other multilateral uh, fora to bring it up in. And, of course, we can continue to lobby governors and the congressmen and women and senators. So, I mean, we have many tools we can use. They're more indirect, but I don't think that we want to get into a direct frontal confrontation with Donald Trump. All that's going to do is play into his hands for the off-year election so he can go out there and say, hey, I'm standing up to those people trying to take us to the cleaners. It's going to help him get reelected. That's the last thing we should be trying to do. Well, I mean, as they were talking about this yesterday, I mean, the image in my mind that it conjured up was, was that scene in the Monty Python Holy Grail, you know, when the knight keeps getting his limbs lopped off. And after he finally says to the other guy who's doing it, he says, well, have you had enough? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, and because because there will be retaliation. If we retaliate oh. against this, they're going to come back with something else. And we only have exactly. so many tools in our toolkit. That's right. And as somebody who's gone across that border over my lifetime since I was a child, because we used to go across and camp date picnics in upstate New York on the opposite side of the St. Lawrence, I've crossed that border probably four or five hundred times in my life, literally, literally, because we go down there all the time. We're so close. And my point that I'm getting at is they can they can shut that border down at a dime. I mean, you know, they can stop our trucks going through with our stuff, our cars, whatever we're shipping there. They can, to use the, the, the technical phrase, they can thicken the border without even breaking the law. They can just say, okay, we want every truck inspected going forward. Well, and they did that after 9-11. And look they at sure the impact did. it had on the economy. Oh, you know, the exactly. bridges at Niagara Falls just down the road from us are the Windsor Bridge. Exactly. I mean, it, it was, you know, truckers were backed up for miles. Exactly. If they want to shut down Canada, all they have to do is just simply say we're going to inspect every truck going across that border. And, and if we want to retaliate, I mean, we don't have anything to retaliate with because, you know, we're, we're so much smaller. We're only one-tenth 
of their size. That's why I keep using the analogy of peewee team or a you know midget team playing a, an NHL hockey team. Well, it's just not the, not the same scale, not the same size, the same speed, the same strength. And uh, so we don't want to get into a frontal trade war with them. We want to do, you know, jujitsu, if you will, and, you know, use their weight against them. They're, you know, through WTO challenges and NAFTA challenges and go to the courts challenges and, and use the opposition parties and maybe even Republican Congress uh, leaders and, and governors who are, by the way, notwithstanding Trump, most governors in the state, Republicans in the states are still very pro-free trade. Mm-hmm. People forget that. They, they think they've all caved in to, to Donald Trump. They haven't. Most Republicans are still solidly pro-trade Republicans. So we've well, got some allies there. Well, including the Speaker of the House, uh, or the outgoing Speaker, I guess, yeah. Paul Ryan, who I know a lot of people vilify, and, and with some justification, but he's very, very international trade and very pro-trade and a yeah. uh, very big supporter of NAFTA. So you have to wonder... Uh, about a strategy like this, that we, I guess, as you say, we have to be strategic uh, and, and not try to flex our muscle. Absolutely. But your your point's well taken. I, we, I know we only have about a minute left here. To get yelling my ear here. here. Here's the thing. Uh, Trump's looking for a fight right now because he's looking to garner support for these midterms, and yep. he needs an enemy. Uh, he tried to make it North Korea. Now he's kind of villa. It was going to be China, but maybe that's kind of abstract for people. But if he says, hey, these people to the north are screwing us around and they've got to, yep. that's going to work. It sure is. In in and Ohio, it's going to work. In in Michigan, it's going to work. I mean, because they they can relate to that. I've been there. I mean, I've gone on road trips to these states, and you start talking to them, and they find out you're a Canadian. They're very nice to us. I mean, because they like us. But I'm telling you, if you bring up the subject of trade and that sort of thing, they really, I think, ordinary Americans, especially in the Rust Belt states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, upstate New York, they really believe that Mexico and Canada have taken them to the cleaners. Now, it's nonsense, but that doesn't matter. Perception is reality, and he is going to play and traffic on that uh, uh, perception in the next, uh, because he wants to be real, he wants the Congress to stay Republican, and so he's going to do whatever he he's going to do whatever he can, including making things up. <laughs> Ian Lee at the Sprott School of Business, uh, more to come on this one for sure. Thanks for this, Ian. Thanks very much, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is being urged to uh, determine uh, whether there is a security threat and economic cost to Huawei's role in Canada. Now, uh, Huawei, relatively new player, I guess, in, in what's going on in technology these days, uh, and uh, making a big wave, obviously, because of some of their product. But they have also decided to engage in establishing a footprint here, not just uh, in business uh, and in uh, technological stuff and telecommunications, but also at the academic level. Well, that's raised the concern of a lot of security experts right now. They're suggesting that uh, maybe the government had better tread lightly before they allow this to happen. Joining us to talk about the implications, Daniel Tobuck, who is the CEO of Scientelligence Incorporated, experts, of course, on cyber security, and always a welcome guest. Daniel, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on. I'm sure these are wonderful people at Huawei, and it's a great product from what we're told, but are we letting the fox into the hen house here? Uh, you know, the unfortunate part, when we look at a lot of this technology platform, we're not always 100% sure what's actually embedded in those devices. So what, what most people don't know, that a lot of different technologies that come into Canada, before they enter the government sphere, there's a division that actually does a security assessment on them, and a bit of reverse engineering. This is public information, right? The unfortunate part, they don't go through the same thing for consumers. So as a result, we, 
I, I don't want to sound like we're being overly simplistic here, but we, in other words, we may not know what we're buying or what we're letting ourselves into. Absolutely. I mean, as long as it passes a certain minimal threshold by security standards and so on, we fairly cannot deep, deep, deeper as consumers to actually understand what's embedded in those devices. Um, again, not to, not to take a sway towards products that are made uh, outside of Canada, but if you look at a lot of the technologies today, they're all made within specific regions in the world. We just don't have control of what goes into those devices. I mean, just as an example, and it's it's like when you watch some of these spy shows, and somebody sticks a you know a, a, a receiver into the telephone or something like this, and say, "Ha ha!" Now we can monitor everything that's going on. Not for a minute suggesting that Huawei's doing that, but suggesting that in in you know we may not know because we don't look for that sort of thing. Absolutely. So of course, not pointing the finger at Huawei and you know making any claims of that nature. The, you know, I always say the most important question: Is it possible? The answer is yes. It is possible. And, and what exacerbates that concern, I guess, at this stage, Daniel, is the fact that we do know this about Huawei, is they have very close links to China's ruling Communist Party. And, uh, well, we already know about the Chinese propensity for, for cyber uh, intelligence and for basically hacking and, and, and spying, frankly. And, and you have to wonder if, if there's a concern there. Absolutely, Bill. And I always like to add another one. Data harvesting is also a sport. Oh, yeah. yeah that's Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the popular sport now, isn't it? That's what they all seem to be up to, one way, shape, or another. We just <laughs> found that now CIBC saying there could have been a data breach of today. That's just right out of the headlines to talk about that. Uh, but but notwithstanding that, uh, the, 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 Huawei's jumping in here in a big way. Uh, and I want to, the market side of things is, is something we can talk about and make it greater to you But I'm concerned about the academic aspect. And I think that's what a lot of security folks are doing. They're investing a great deal of money at this stage, Daniel, into Canadian universities uh, vis-a-vis, uh, I guess, the, the quid pro quo here is we want the technology that you develop. And uh, it's awfully hard for universities these days to turn down money, but at what cost? Yeah. If, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're investing about $50 million uh, into uh, it's 12 or 13 universities uh, across Canada uh, as part of, again, research and development and so on. You know, again, what we always have to remember, and, and we went through with this once in another scenario, is when any organization is investing this type of dollars into research, one of their expectations is, is that they have access to the data, they potentially control the research and have uh, the benefit of it. So we have to keep that in mind. Well, and there's a couple of aspects to this. First of all, it's, it's as you say, uh, basically they've got Canadian professors and Canadian technicians and, and, and entrepreneurs right now uh, developing stuff. Uh, and, and I know that at least, what is it, I think the number I saw was about 40 situations right now where those university professors have transferred full rights to their inventions and to their technology and to their research right back to Huawei. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So they're, they're essentially working for them. Well, you know, this is how it turns, and I always feel bad for the universities, and we work very closely with universities in Canada, is when they receive, you know, I always say there's grant and then there's investments. When they receive investments from private corporations, uh, those corporations have the right and control over that research and work product. Uh, I always say that's nice and dandy when it's a Canadian corporation, even a U.S. corporation. I, I, I unfortunately do get my uh, shoulders up, when it's a, it's a foreign corporation with very close ties to uh, a particular regime or a particular government, we have to be extra cautious and understand 
uh, the risks that are associated with those type of decisions. And, and again, they're playing politics with this. I mean, ever since this story came to light, uh, and some concerns have been raised. Of course, the government, first of all, they, they you know, it was the art of deflection. Uh, the prime minister's office, I guess, uh, said, go talk to, to the, uh, and, uh, and, you know, the innovation minister. And, and he said, well, I'll go talk to Ralph Goodale's in charge of security. And, and Goodale's answer, I thought, was rather trite. He just simply said, look, at, yeah, there's a ton of money going for the government, but half of that came from the Harper government. That's not the point. It's, it's what may be happening here, and I think that's what they're asking for. They're not saying don't invest in this. They're saying, have you done your due diligence on this? I'm not sure we have. Uh, I'm, I agree with you 100%. You know, the interesting question, and don't mean to really stir the pot here, but the interesting question, if, if everybody is so comfortable and confident in this, why isn't the Canadian government changing to a new platform? Well, that's a, that, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> right? I mean, if everything is so hunky-dory... Why we're not talking about, you know, there's a great player out there and great technology, and let's implement into the government. There's a very strict rules in the government what they use and what they don't use based on trust. And I can tell you that Hawaii will, will not see the light of day so far of entering any Canadian government. And at least I hope that's what it stays to, because we're just not sure of the origin and the source of those devices and technology. So why put everybody else at risk? From an, from an economic standpoint, and I know we're kind of getting off into a tangent, uh, but I think it still has to be part of the conversation. Uh, essentially what's going on here is Huawei is buying this, this expertise from Canadian professors and Canadian entrepreneurs and investors in situations like this. But uh, do we not have a responsibility at some point, Daniel, to protect our, our own integrity here and intellectual properties? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and this is where I think we as consumers don't always get to see that. We are assuming and, and hopeful that the people at the top that are making these decisions have actually went through the proper due diligence steps. Uh, I think there's a, there is a definite responsibility on our end to make sure the data is protected, intellectual property stays here in Canada and gets protected with all of this type of uh, deals. How do we do that? Is there a template? Is there, are there other countries that are doing it better than we are? You know, uh, I, I've read a couple uh, different uh, case studies of, of various government investments and foreign corporation investment, in particular in Europe. <clears throat> I mean, you know, unfortunately, nobody has the magic, the magic uh, solution. I do have to say, though, in Europe, there are a lot more stringent when it comes to privacy of data and development within universities. When we work with a couple of universities in Germany, uh, France, uh, Sweden in particular, Italy, there's a very big emphasis that research information actually stays within the university. Uh, we've actually been part of what I call a high-level negotiation with a foreign corporation where the university was very adamant that if they are not able to keep this research and, and uh, fully and they're more than happy to provide some type of information back to the investor that they're not interested in the, in the, in the actual investment money in the university. And they put, a, they put their foot down. They care about data. They're very responsible. But those countries that you've referenced, though, I find, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, though, but I mean, some of those European countries uh, receive much more federal money than, than the Canadian government seems to put towards Canadian universities. So that gives them a comfort level. Bingo. Bingo, you just nailed it. And that's what I feel Canadian universities are more desperate for funding because the government is not giving enough. And I feel that's the reason they're going to private corporations and private funding. And that's where, the, where you end up with a problem that your research and your development is owned by somebody else versus keeping it in Canada. 
Yeah, so that's what the university story is here right now, is that, look, we don't get enough money from our government, so we have to go out there. We have to go and beat the bushes and get private sector money or, you know, even foreign government money in situations like this. So that that's an opening for companies like Huawei and others to simply walk in here and say, I'll cut a check for you. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. So we're in a conundrum right now, and and again, it, there's a certain amount of speculation there. It's the, nobody is pointing the finger at Huawei and saying the, they are doing this, but sometimes there, there's an element, and I'm sure you guys deal with this on a pretty consistent basis, Daniel, with your work, uh, is guilt by association. Uh, I mean, you've got a company uh, that has very strong ties with a communist government that has been already found uh, to have hacked a number of files and to be spying on Canadian entities, and you have to ask yourself. It's, is it safe? And and that really seems to be the overriding question here. Yeah, I, I ha- absolutely. I have to tell you, in 2013, when all of this was commencing and relationships and so on, uh, the, you know, a bunch of uh, of the major telcos in Canada got together to speak about what they're going to do about this. And there was a whole bunch of backlash and, and, and communication in the community saying, hey, we don't know anything about this product. So if anybody done any d- the diligence, and everybody kind of looked at each other and said, we don't know. We don't know what the deal interest has been done. We are assuming that everything is under control. Again, this is not picking at Hawaii in particular. This is not about them. This is just as, as a general idea. We can't have this type of technologies that are spread to the millions of consumers in Canada go without proper due diligence. Well, haven't we just seen examples of this in the recent past? I mean, with the, the Russian involvement in, in the U.S. political system, and and I don't know that anybody even raised an eyebrow a year or two ago, Daniel, when all of a sudden Russian entities were buying up huge tracts of advertising on Facebook and say, well, isn't that great? We don't care where the money comes from. It's a revenue source. Uh, but we didn't understand that they had rather ulterior motives to this, which obviously had a negative impact on the U.S. political system. And again, I, I'm not trying to you know single out Huawei in situations like this, but you thought we would have learned from that and said, maybe, maybe we should better ask a few more questions. Absolutely. I, I feel that we really have to take a step back and do proper due diligence before we engage with a service, even um, an advertiser. You know, when you have this mysterious corporation starting to buy, you know, ad space on Facebook and so on, somebody in the back room has to do some sort of due diligence and understand who just does this. We have, we have this compliance today when it comes to money laundering. We have this compliance in the financial institution. We haven't even had compliance in, in the healthcare system where before we buy certain products, they have to pass certain compliance. Why aren't we doing this in everything else that we do? So I feel this is where the maturity has to come. And I, I fully agree with you. We should not have people buying ads and swaying opinion and, and changing that just because they can, just because it comes to dollars. There's got to be responsibility on those corporations. But there also has to be, a, as you say, a vetting process. And even if it's private sector entities that are accepting money from other entities, uh, the government still has to have some oversight, I would think, in the interest of, of national security. And I know that sounds like a pretty broad statement, but, I mean, the reality is, as we, we've seen examples of this now, that, that, that countries and, and you know companies that are affiliated with foreign governments do this on a pretty regular basis right now. We'd be naive to think it doesn't happen here. Absolutely. I, I, I always say I do not believe we and uh, you know we need more government control, but I think there's got to be some kind of steps taken of compliance where people are going to be responsible for their action. 
right. And, yeah. and and I'm not so sure that the you know the universities are being naive in this. I think, as you mentioned, they're cash strapped right now, and they may understand this. And and you know, but at the same time, you know, the 50 million bucks is a lot of money, uh, and and you yeah. can do a lot of research with that and fund a lot of salaries of some professors. Uh, but the the downside, and this is what I, I can't understand, Daniel, is is the downside for the universities themselves is they lose all rights to this stuff. I mean, it may have been developed at, at University XYZ here in Canada, but the intellectual property goes all the way back to Huawei, who's going to take it back to China, and who knows what's going to happen. So there's there's no net gain economically for the university to do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so how do we how do we get a government to to ramp it up here and and to get involved in this? Because you you touched on I think one of the most important points here is finding that delicate balance. You don't want the government to lord over uh, private enterprise, but at the same time, uh, especially in telecommunications, uh, and, and and that's what we're talking about here. We already know that there's an overlap there, and the government I think would be shirking their responsibilities if they didn't do something. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, I, everything is about balance. We, we always talk about that. I think uh, private corporations need to develop an understanding for the proper due diligence. Uh, in particular, I would focus initially on organizations like the Facebooks of the world, what I call this multi, massive multimedia type companies that do have access to so many consumers and businesses and people in, in our nation. Uh, because I feel those have more responsibility then, for example, a small company, and I just say that, you know, with a couple of people working in a basement. So we have to look at those large corporations that actually are movers and shakers that do change and affect many of us here in the country. But there needs to be collaboration between the government and those businesses to come to a happy medium on what is it, what is the responsibility and due diligence that they have to go through as part of their compliance before they accept, you know, all this money. There's got to be a threshold. And again, I, you know, I'm not a multimedia expert, but a threshold can be a million dollars. It could be ten, could be twenty, it could be a hundred thousand. It, it really comes down to that particular business and service. But something's got to change because what we're seeing today is we're we have a bit of a maturity. We're about five years behind behind all the activities that are going on and the technologies that are evolving, and it's always a catch-up game. But we need to be able to connect those dots together. To protect everybody in our nation. Yeah, exactly. And there's going to be pushback. And I know there already has been from some of the universities. I know the uh, uh, the president of uh, research and innovation at the U of T, which is one of the universities that gets funding, uh, says this whole thing is overblown. That the the you know the upside is a lot better. They get money to train people uh, for advanced fields and relationships with foreign industry. And he says, don't build walls up, or we're not going to get that investment. Now, I don't think anybody's suggesting we build walls up. I think what we're asking is let's have a strainer here that these things have to go through so we can find out exactly what's happening and get and, and, and maybe separate the bad from the good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always interesting, always uh, insightful to get your conversation and your take on this stuff. Daniel, thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Daniel Tobak, of course, CEO for Scientelligence, experts on cybersecurity. And, and again, Huawei is going to be a player in this. We know that. And we've talked about this on Tech Talk when Adam Oldfield is with us here on the program on Friday mornings here on CHML. And uh, uh, they're impressive. I mean, the products that they're putting out here are quite impressive and quite attractive, obviously, to the market. And they're trying to be a player. And we understand that. But the, the concern, and that's not the concern. The concern is their association with the Chinese government. And they seem to have very strong ties with a government that has been known to engage in things like cyber breaches, hacking, and spying. And when you have a telecommunications country that has that ability to 
assist if, in fact, they wanted to. You have to be careful when you let them in. The analogy I used right at the beginning of the conversation, don't let the fox into the hen house. Invite them uh, by all means, but let's go through proper vetting to make sure that, that thing isn't concerned. We spend way too much time saying, God, I didn't know they were going to do that. And I'll, it's, it's awfully hard once the, you know, the barn door is open to get the horses back in. So let's, let's, let's be diligent about this. And the government really has to take a lead role here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.